Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research, from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to an Administrative Perspectives episode with Marla Pitriello and Doug Oda. I'm your host, David. My name is James. I'm a new host, also the podcast production assistant for the SCI Science Perspectives podcast. I'm a pre-medical student, having graduated from Boston University, and I will be a very short and very quick host today. Today we will be discussing fellowships in SCI medicine. We'll show you under the hood of an SCI accredited fellowship program, what it is like to go through one, and a bit on what it's like to do SCI medicine doctoring. We usually bring you two perspectives. In this episode, those perspectives are from the vantage point of a recent graduate of an SCIM fellowship and the director of an SCIMF. Dr. Petriello is a board certified physiatrist currently practicing in San Diego, California. She completed her residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital, Georgetown University, where she served as chief resident. She's a 2023 graduate of Spinal Cord Injury Medicine Fellowship Program at Stanford VA Palo Alto. And Dr. Doug Oda joined the Spinal Cord Injuries and Disorders Center at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System in 2000 and has served as director of the SCID Outpatient Services and SCID Home Care Program since 2002 and the chief of service since 2014, pardon. He completed a residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Stanford and then completed a spinal cord injury medicine fellowship at the Stanford VA Palo Alto. He is the program director for the Stanford Spinal Cord Injury Medicine Fellowship and is a clinical professor, Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He provides outpatient clinical care, including primary care and the management of secondary conditions throughout the lifetime for veterans with an SCID. Welcome to both of our guests today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's been a honor to participate in this important topic. Absolutely. Okay, so if we can drop an anchor with this first question, and it'll be the same question for both of you, but I imagine the perspective is quite different. So on your origin stories to becoming an SCI doc, what was it that first made you want to become a spinal cord injury medicine board certified doctor? I'll go ahead and start. Really, when I look at my uh, pursuit for a career in medicine, it was really founded on this interest in functional restoration. You know, when we look at uh, individuals returning back to the community after sustaining, for example, a catastrophic injury where all elements of their function are severely disrupted, it was really this approach to restore their their function again. It takes this coordinated team effort with the individual being the center of that team and utilizing strategies, whether it's a compensatory approach, uh, natural recovery, and even activity-based therapy. The ultimate goal is to not be discharged from the hospital, but return back to the community, redefining their life and pursuing these quality of life uh, endeavors. And so really being a spinal cord injury doctor ultimately fulfilled the original reason I went into medicine, which was that focus on functional restoration. Yeah, that's such a good perspective, Dr. Oda. I uh, came in 
to sort of knowing what spinal cord injury medicine was a little bit later in my path. My exposure to PMNR initially was through sports and pain clinics um, and kind of that side of physical medicine and rehab. And then when I started medical school, I got a little bit of exposure to neuro rehab and inpatient rehab and what the physiatrist role in that type of rehabilitation was. It really wasn't until I got into residency and really started to get onto those rotations and see what neuro rehabilitation is and see how these injuries, as Dr. Oda mentioned, impact every single facet of life and function and how our expertise in just these injuries and how they affect every part of a person's day can really help somebody have a better recovery. And so for me, just having, I really enjoy that part of spinal cord injury medicine is we get to kind of touch on every part of a person's life and every part of their function. And, you know, you're not really tailored into one thing. You get to look at that person in their entirety, which is what I really love about the field. Yeah. If you, if you don't mind me asking, and uh, Dr. Oda, this is going to be the part where, you know, your perspective is really going to help, but I'm a little bit younger. So is James. And I don't know that much about the history of the spinal cord injury medicine fellowship, but from the outside, if I just look in and I think about, Oh, uh, a spinal cord injury doc. Um, maybe I think neurology. You know, do you think there's something about physiatry, physical medicine rehabilitation that lends itself to this? Well, the um, development of spinal cord injury fellowships really is borne out in just the progression of of spinal cord injury as a subspecialty, which aligned with the physical medicine and rehabilitation arena. It started in the late 1970s when the American Paraplegia Society, which was a multidisciplinary endeavor, uh, really looked to developing a certifying board for spinal cord injury medicine. Initial efforts weren't successful, but they did partner with the Eastern Paralyzed Veterans of America, and they held a uh, conference and they started drafting a proposal to submit to the American Board of Medical Specialties, as well as parallel to that, they wanted to submit a proposal to the American, the ACGME. And what that led to was a focus of developing a subspecialty objective and a training objective. It, it was very visionary in that they weren't holding it specifically to one discipline. However, through recommendations, the American Board of Medical Specialty said it would probably not sustain itself as its own standalone specialty. But if you work with an already established entity, it could likely become more of a subspecialty. With that, they partnered with American Board of of physical medicine rehab, as opposed to, for example, neurology or some other specialty. And so that was the main impetus for being aligned with physical medicine rehab. Now, the same, they were successful. And by 1995, American Board of Medical Specialties did approve them as a subspecialty. And in 1996, the ACGME approved the training element as a, a, uh, entity, and that was the foundation for what eventually would become our, our fellowships. Parallel to this, they also developed a, a examination that was administered for the first time in 1998. And in that examination, there were 92 uh, applicants who took the exam and 80 passed. 
70 of them were physical medicine rehabilitation, but I think it's important to note that 10 of them were diplomats in internal medicine, orthopedic surgery, pediatrics, psychiatry, neurology, and urology. So I think it speaks to the field is much broader than specifically physical medicine rehab. And I think that's important for the future of the field is to be able to pull in other specialties in addition to those that traditionally go into the physical medicine rehabilitation arena. Yeah, that's great for someone who wasn't here for all of that history to be able to learn about it. Um, and it, as with any of these historical complex processes, it's never obvious until you're you're just brought to what happened. So much thanks for that. There is a great summary. It was the Donald Monroe lecture by Joel DeLisa in 1999 that really lays out the spinal cord injury subspecialty uh, journey and with that the development of the fellowship programs and this is even accessible in um, the journal of spinal cord medicine. That's very appreciated. Any fellow that goes through the program that I'm affiliated with I will definitely be suggesting gives a read to that. You brought up Dr. Oda at the beginning of what made you want to become a spinal cord injury doctor, and you bring up functional restoration. You also brought up teamwork. And so when it comes to all of those different disciplines, what role is the the SCIM uh, actual doc playing in roping all of those specialists in? Yeah, ideally, they are the team leader. They are the glue that holds all the other important elements together. And yet it is a team approach. So if you're missing uh, several other elements, the whole process may collapse or may not be as optimal um, as we would envision. It's really more of a patient-centered medical home approach where it's not necessarily a place, it's not necessarily a specific individual, it's it's that collective element, but at the center is the patient, and the other key element is that leader, which is typically the spinal cord injury medicine provider. And it could be that at the VA, this is done better than other places. In my experience, that seems to be the case for sure. And uh, Dr. Oda, do you know how many of the Spinal Cord Injury Medicine Fellowship programs do have a VA affiliation? Uh, I don't have it off the top of my head. However, there are 26 fellowship programs, and there are uh, several, somewhere I would just hasten to guess of seven to 10 that have a strong VA presence. And by that, I mean they're associated with a VA center of spinal cord injury. There are other programs that are associated to the VA through the hub and spoke model. So with their VA connections, it will be a spoke model. So there is also additional exposure to the veteran population. And the element that comes into play in these spoke sites is you get to see these individuals through that longitudinal care. So it's post-acute rehabilitation, and you get to experience what it takes to continue their journey, particularly on an outpatient basis. 
and that includes the wellness and addressing the medical surgical elements, but also the secondary condition elements and those transition points as they age and they may no longer be able to function the way they used to when they came out of acute rehabilitation program. Even at the spoke site level, you can experience what it is to go through those transition points and what it takes to get the resources to continue them forward. I'll piggyback off of that real quick, Dr. Oda. I think that was actually a really important thing when I was going through the application process for fellowship was to consider whether there was a VA presence within the fellowship program, if that sort of aligned with my goals going through fellowship. And I think a lot of that depends on what your exposure was in your residency program. You know, if you maybe had a really strong VA presence in your residency and you had that exposure, that'd be something to consider. But even if your goal is to do acute rehabilitation, having that knowledge that you mentioned about you know, 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line, 20 years down the line, what is this injury going to look like? Really sort of frames what you're doing even in the acute care because you're thinking down the line about what this person's life is going to be. And so uh, it makes you think about your interventions initially. So I think that's definitely something that um, anybody that's interested in applying for Spinal Cord Injury Fellowship should definitely be considering making sure that you have that exposure to longitudinal care, regardless of kind of what your career aspirations are going to be later. I think about the acute rehabilitation referral process and something we embrace is part of that acute referral process before they even come in is what's the discharge disposition. For us, it's not so much because of a uh, payer source and where they going to be placed afterwards, ideally in the community. But the more important element is what does their re-engagement back in the community look like? So we understand this is important for that treatment plan when they're here for the acute rehabilitation. Absolutely. And then I have just one more of these uh, regulatory type questions. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dr. Oda. Can sure. you tell us just a bit about how the fellowship programs are funded? And then James is going to jump in. Sure. So the funding comes from both private and public sectors. So in general, GMEs are derived from public and private sources. The government really is the largest source of uh, funding for graduate medical education. In the government, it comes from several sources. Predominantly, it's going to be Department of Health and Human Services. Secondarily, the Veteran Affairs. The Center for Medicare, Medicaid is really the largest source of that federal GME. So that's CMS funding it. Within the Veteran Affairs, they partner with these academic affiliations and support educational payments uh, through the Office of Academic Affiliations. The third element is private sourcing. And one example is the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation and their Spinal Cord Injury Fellowship Portfolio. Their intent is really to um, support the specialized clinical training and then allow for a flow of talent into the field. And these grants are by invitation only. There are currently 17 programs that are listed as grant recipients based on their field positions. Hmm. I actually have a question for both of you regarding this. Um, in terms of the match process, what is it like? So like coming from someone who's a pre-med, it's very foreign to me. So if you guys can explain it to someone like me in this position, what would it be like? Um, 
That's a great question, James. It is. I think it's still a foreign concept, even after going through it twice now. <laughs> I can't say that I hold all the secrets, but it turned out all right for me. So, uh, <laughs> so the matching process, I like to think about it kind of like a dating service. You know, you look through the programs and you sort of evaluate them and you, you know, the way I did it was I kind of listed the qualities of the programs that you know, I really wanted and I thought that were important to me and my education. And I always tell people going through this application process to remember that your whole life is not your studying and your program. You also have to live in, live in the place that you go. You have to do all of your other daily activities in the place that you are. You have to enjoy your life outside of work or you can't be successful in work. So always consider location, uh, making sure that it's a place that you want to live and then once you have those down you look through the programs and you apply to the programs that match those qualities that you're looking for and so I think spinal cord injury medicine has a really good problem in that there's a lot of really good programs and so you're able to sort of think about what's really important to you because there's so many really strong diverse programs and then you apply and then um, for spinal cord injury in particular the application process is you know, late summer. And then the programs will reach out to you if they want to interview. As of right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Oda, but I still think all interviews are virtual um, as of now. And then once you go through the interview process, you rank the programs um, where you literally rank one, two, three, four, five, however many, and then the programs match their app, uh, rank their applicants. And then some fancy algorithm matches you together and that's kind of how it works. So it's a little bit of a scary process because you feel like you've lost a little bit of control because you just put this list out into like the internet and somebody's going to come back to you and tell you where you're going to spend the next year of your life. But it's also a lot of fun and a really good way to get to meet some of these programs, get to meet some really big experts in the field that you think are just kind of these names that you'll never, ever meet. Uh, and then they just pop up on your interview screen. So uh, I really enjoyed the process, actually. Yeah, as Moelle pointed out, the interview process for spinal cord injury medicine fellowship specifically is virtual. And, and that was born out of need with COVID-19. However, the process worked so well that we've uh, embraced that as the ideal process for doing interviews. One of the strengths of it is it, it, it levels that playing field. Um, so you're not having to constrain yourself. I can only pick a certain number of programs because of the cost of traveling. And so it opens up the opportunities for the candidates on programs. And that, I think, helps align the fellows' goals and desires for not only the education, but as Marla pointed out, that life balance uh, by doing it in a virtual format. From our end, the process parallels what Marla described. There is an opening of the match, and the individual would register for the match as well as the programs register for the match. Um, there are a certain quotas. Some programs have one fellowship. Other programs have two fellowships, so that may play into the decision-making process. Um, some fellows embrace the idea of being able to work with a partner fellow, and so they may look at what the success has been with fellowship programs in filling both spots. There is a deadline to submit the ranking. 
And then at that point, it's a waiting game. And we all know when that match date occurs and that day comes and there's a lot of excitement on both sides. I remember as a medical student waiting for that day and opening the letter. Now it's electronic, but very exciting to find out. And then we uh, discover on both ends who is coming and who is going to which place. The the process really does try to support the applicant. So it matches the applicant based on their preference on the rank list. If they don't match into that first program, then the attempt is uh, made to place the applicant in second choice program and then on and on and on. So it really does support the applicant. Okay, so after that process, like you're matched, that's all done. What is like, what is it really like in the day of like a spinal cord injury medicine fellow or doctor in general? It's a great question. And to be honest, the days change kind of based on what you're doing for that month, similar to residency. And I'm sure each program is different. So I can only really speak for my experience, but you know, one of the great things about what Dr. Oda does at Stanford is that we really sit down and we literally come up with a list of everything that you want to do and make sure that you see, make sure that you learn while you're in fellowship. And the whole year, we're literally sitting there and going through it over and over. And he's checking off, making sure that you're getting those experiences that you want as they come up throughout the year. And so your day could be, you know, a normal inpatient day where you get to the office, you have your interdisciplinary team meetings where you're meeting with, you know, everybody else on the floor and you're meeting with nursing and then you're going and seeing your patients and doing patient care throughout the day to something like, you know, your patient is getting a flat procedure done and you're going to the OR for the day so you can see what it's like for them to have a flap and why they need to do this sitting regimen the way they need to do it based on what the surgeons are seeing. Or your day might be rounding with the home care team. Um, or your day might be one of your inpatients is going to do some adaptive sports, learn some new adaptive sports, and you can go with them. So your day-to-day -day really can change. But what I sort of really appreciated that was in my experience was that fellowship is really focused. You know, you have your basic knowledge that you learned in residency. And I really felt that I got a very strong education in my residency. And so this was just to top you off, to make you an expert in spinal cord injury. And so those niche experiences that you can get in fellowship, you know, if, if you had a program director and faculty there that are really have your interests at heart, and you're just cutting those last few things that you need to really become an expert in the field as much as you can in one year. So that really doesn't help with the day-to-day, -day, but I'd say that in fellowship, you should really be focused on getting those last experiences and those things that are really important to you um, so you can really round out your education. And then you've got, you know, the next 30 years of your career to keep piling on your expertise. Yeah, Martha brings up many excellent points uh, as it relates to uh, the day-to-day -day activities and how that fits in with the training element. At, at, at the basic element, there's the core competencies. Anyone going through a fellowship should achieve the core competencies. And built on that are the core elements to deliver that, that milieu 
to achieve those core competencies. But it is also really important to identify what are the goals and objectives of each individual. Each person who goes through a fellowship is going to have their own unique pathway. And so it's important for each of these individuals to define what direction do they want to go. It may be a purely clinical course. It may be heavily weighted towards research, maybe a a mixture of research with clinical or education with uh, clinical elements. And so really understanding what the individual wants to do one year, five years, 10 years down the line helps define the program that may align. Now, within those programs, there's going to be variability, but there typically are going to be inpatient and outpatient rotations. And within those inpatient rotations, there's going to be the clinical responsibilities, seeing patients, identifying the diagnostic plans that are needed, the treatment plans, working with the team to deliver that treatment plan on the outpatient uh, side. It's a very different model than the inpatient side. There might be a higher volume. You see the patients, you work to develop what are the next steps. End of the day's over. The next day you see a new set of patients. So it's a different dynamics that occurs. Also in these day-to-day activities, there may be protected time for research and that's a component. But as much as the direct clinical exposure where we learn, there's also protected educational elements. This may occur in didactic sessions, whiteboard or roundtable discussion, maybe attending uh, educational rounds or conference opportunities. So it should look very robust, but it should align to the specific rotation an individual is engaged and uh, a melding of that clinical exposure with educational opportunities. Okay, great. And then, so with all that responsibility that someone's going to have becoming a doctor in spinal cord injury medicine, um, how do you achieve a work-life balance during that fellowship? I think that's an awesome question. And uh, I think Dr. Odo would agree that myself and my co-fellow Sean did a pretty good job of this uh, during our time. They were a little. Um. No, I think it's really important. It, it it really is. And I know we joke about it and we laugh about it, but you really, I firmly believe, and the research shows, the data shows that you have to, you know, you have to be able to do what you need to do to decompress, to be an effective physician and to be at the top of your game, which is really what, you know, as a patient, I expect. If I go and see my doctor, I expect them to be, you know, as much at their best as they can be. And so we have to take care of ourselves so we can take care of our patients. I think, you know, I don't really have any secret sauce or anything like that. I think it's really just identifying the things that are most important to you outside of work and making sure that those things are prioritized in your day-to-day life. So, you know, an easy example for us, Sean and I both really enjoy lifting, going to the gym. So we would make sure that we kind of pushed each other to do that, which was a nice part of having two fellows you know, we really kind of challenged each other to spend more time there and making sure, that, you know, I, man, I just didn't get there all last week. Oh, come on. I'm going today. Why don't you come with me? Like, you know, kind of just helping each other out with that type of stuff and then really taking rest when you need to, you know, fellowship is supposed to, I don't think it's supposed to be a time that you're getting killed. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but 
I think this is a time where you're really supposed to be focused in on your what you're learning and your day-to-day learning so that you can really become an expert in the field. Um, but it's also your time to become a professional and to be ready to be an attending on your own. And when you're on your own, you're going to have to do your day-to-day activities on your own. So your day's not going to get any easier. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure I have like a special answer for it, but I think it's just prioritizing what you need to prioritize and making sure that you kind of stick with those things that, you know, make your day a little bit better. I, I think there is a bit of a transition point going from residency to fellowship In residency, there may be more of a focus on that uh, task focus and workload focus, uh, getting someone admitted, going through the admission history and physical and the orders. In the fellowship, there should be more of an opportunity to really dig deeper, really dig deep to know the patient, to understand where they're coming from, how does that couple with the research and understanding how the research supports the clinical care we're delivering. And so that's why it it takes it to that next level to become much more engaged with the individuals as well as much deeper in our knowledge on how to deliver that, that care. I think in terms of strategies, uh, time efficiency is always important in, I think, any job. And time efficiency can come in the form of having that structure and organization. But also a a key component is limit setting, knowing what can't be done, what you uh, is maybe out of your capabilities and not trying to engage in things simply because it's out there, simply because it's being asked, just really defining this is where I'm heading and these are my capabilities and I'm not going to tackle something that doesn't fit in the objectives as well as I don't really have the skill set. Maybe it's not even going to fit in my career. It's important to have broad exposure, but not necessarily take on everything simply because it's in front of you. Right. And so I actually, that follows me up to, I want to ask you guys, in your opinion, like, what are some misconceptions or challenges about spinal cord injury medicine or just medicine in general that, like, some people might not know, some people might not expect, especially someone trying to, like, begin my career going into it? Like, what might I not expect? I think for me, and this, honestly, I didn't really think about this even until, really until I got into fellowship and was able to sort of sit down with, you know, Dr. Oda and the rest of the unbelievably good faculty there just kind of talk about what our career goals were and my day-to-day goals were. You know, I was always under the impression that there was no lifestyle flexibility in medicine, that your day-to-day life was, you know, you were going to work 10 to 12 hours a day and you would take night call and you would take all these things. And that was just the way you had to work as a physician. And that's kind of it. And it's really not the reality. And I think um, specific to our field of physiatry. And, uh, you know, there's always this talk of why are, you know, why do people want to go into outpatient musculoskeletal medicine versus why they want to do inpatient more neuro rehab. I think it's a similar thought. People think that there's really not a lot of flexibility in the inpatient setting versus doing something on the outpatient setting. And, you know, you really just have to be a little bit more broad with your thoughts and what you can see yourself doing. And there really can be a lot of flexibility within your schedule. 
and within, you know, your, what you choose to do uh, in your career, you know, you don't have to work that night shift call shift. If that's not what your priority is, if you enjoy doing that and you enjoy taking care of those patients, maybe you should, but if it's not part of what your goals are and what your career goals are, it's not necessary. And so I would encourage just anybody that's looking into going into medicine uh, or any, you know, people that are looking to go into PM&R uh, rehab to just really ask around, what do different physiatrists do? What is their day-to-day -day like? And what matches, you know, what, what patient interactions do they have? Do they follow the patients longitudinally? Do they just see them for a few months uh, in their acute injury or their acute rehab? And what aligns best with what you like and what you do best? And sort of choose your career based on that. You know, I think that what I do best is really communicating with patients and talking to them and seeing, you know, what are their goals? What do they want? You know, what, what can I help them with? You know, what, what am I there to serve them? You know, how can I help and getting, you know, together and working with them and building that rapport to kind of move forward. And so for me, following people longitudinally really allows me to kind of do that. And so that's what I really enjoy about medicine. And so I would just encourage anybody in the field to just make sure that you're what you're doing is actually aligning with what you're good at and what you what you enjoy um, so that you can make your career out of it. I, I think that's such an important question to bring up uh, because I think it speaks to uh, perspectives and as Marla uh, identified, broadening, broadening our views. And uh, I'm going to take a little different angle on, on that question uh, regarding misconceptions and challenges about spinal cord injury medicine. And, and I think it also applies just to medicine in general. And I think, you know, some of the misconceptions and challenges, particularly for individuals with disabilities and maybe even more magnified with spinal cord injury, there's this misconception that, you know, these people are sick and they have less of a life and they're in need of a cure or they need to be free from the wheelchair to have a quality of life or life satisfaction. You know, there's this uh, perception that people with disabilities are depressed and that if you see these individuals in the community and they're participating in life activities, oh, these people are really brave and they're really courageous. The reality is that, you know, with a good support system, including a community of healthcare providers to maximize their function, to minimize their complications, and to support these positive health behaviors. These individuals are doing what all others should strive to achieve, you know, and that's living a life. It doesn't make them brave, doesn't make them courageous, just makes them human. And as humans, we shouldn't fear them. And so, you should be able to look at them in other areas in medicine and disability and recognize these are people we should work with, not work for, but work with. And spinal cord injury medicine is incredibly rewarding because we're working with these individuals to recapture their life. And in the best scenarios, the outcomes are great. They're doing what the rest of us want to do, which is live a life. I could not think of a better way to conclude this episode, Dr. Oda. That's perfect, unless either of you have anything else 
I'd like to thank you for joining us for another great episode here on SCI Science Perspectives. If anybody has any questions about spinal cord injury medicine or fellowship, wants to reach out, just send us, uh, Dave will list our email address for the podcast at the end, send us an email and we'd be happy to talk with anybody that might be interested in the field. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having us. Hopefully this and others help close the gap of the available fellowship spots out there, but the number of applicants. Let's get more applicants out there. Thanks for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The topic discussed in this episode was chosen by yours truly, the production team. And we welcome the first-time co-hosting from production assistant and now co-host James. The podcast is made possible thanks to the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, your producer hosts, David McMillan and Marla Petriello, our editor, Abby Fox, production assistant, James Concepcion, and Asia's front office.